Yeah, that's that's a good thing. Uh, appreciate uh, Phil calling me back again. Um, appreciate what what you folks here are doing, and uh, excited to see how God uses this church to uh, expand the kingdom of God for God's glory. So, this morning, I'd like us to look at Acts chapter 16. <coughs> Back at our church, I've been teaching the book of Acts with another buddy of mine. We've been co-teaching it together. And so a lot of my study and my thoughts right now are in the book of Acts and what God is doing there. Uh, Really, the title here of Acts could be the Acts of the Apostles through the Holy Spirit. Or really the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the beginning of the church age and how he's bringing about the truth or the doctrine this mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians of knowing the Gentiles now are going to be a part of the family of God, not the Jews only, but the Gentiles. And aren't you glad for that? I think most of us here are of the Gentile realm, and so we can appreciate the fact that Christ died for us as well. Um, I hadn't made it this far in my study, but over in chapter 17, I've been looking at this, previewing it, Um, Brandon taught on it last week. Uh, He was sick, and then he was out of town to midnight the night before and studied the morning of, and so we missed some things there. (laughs) So, of course, I had to go and look through it myself. But Acts 17 and verse 6 says that these have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And so I'm interested then this morning... And how can we turn our world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, It seems in our culture in America that we are an entitled people. And so we expect everyone to do something for us. And we think little of doing something for somebody else. And yet, uh, here we find... The Apostle Paul, in his view of life after his Damascus experience of understanding who God is and who he was as a sinner, he's more concerned with how he can live his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, his own life is of no consequence to himself. So you can say that the Apostle Paul is giving 100% of who he is and what he knows to accomplish this task, and that was he was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And it says back when Ananias came to him in Damascus, he was blind for three days, if you'll recall, and Ananias was a little bit apprehensive of going to talk to Saul of Tarsus because he was the one working things out so that he could go and persecute the Christians. He could drag them off to jail. He could kill them uh, because he believed that they were blaspheming God. And so how do you go from that to the apostle to the Gentiles? Right? And so there was a, a miracle worked in the apostle Paul's own life by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to, to Damascus in which this affected him. But first of all, I'd like to notice then in chapter 17 that the Apostle Paul uh, knew God's word, and for us, we are to know God's word if we're going to attempt to 
turn the world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that we aren't really turning the world upside down. What we're trying to do is take an upside down world and turn it right side up. The world's upside down on its own because of sin. Right? And they have no idea which way's up. We talked about that earlier this morning. They have no idea which way's up. And so the, the world is blindly living life whichever direction it pleases. And it's going every which direction but up. And so how do we confront the world and how do we right the world for the cause of Christ? The first thing I noticed in chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, let's read that passage first. I'm going to go into knowing God's word. Let me give this to you because, you know, the chicken's going to be ready at 11.30 to pick up. We need to make sure that we're ready for the chicken. Knowing God's word, knowing God's will, and then finally, knowing Christ's suffering. Uh, That's what Baptist pastors do, finally. It's not the final one. And then finally, knowing God's joy. All right, if you're taking notes. If not, that's where I'm hoping to go. (laughs) I'm I'm bad about following my notes. But anyway, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was the synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and other devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. So we find first here in verse 2, the end of verse 2, that Paul reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Literally here, the translation is he conversed the scriptures or he addressed the scriptures with him or he preached the scriptures to them or he lectured the scriptures to them. Um, It's in a middle voice and so you could literally translate it, he dialogued the scriptures with the Jews in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. So how many of us can do that today? Most of us are like, oh, I don't want to talk about the scriptures. They might ask me a question that I don't know. Well, what does First Peter tell us? First Peter tells us that we should be ready in season and out of season to explain the difference in our lives. The reason we're different is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So can we do that? Can we do that? There's three things that that, uh, Paul's going to do here. He's going to reason with them. Secondly, we find that he opens. He opens the scriptures. Literally, he's laying out evidence before the people in the synagogue. And he's alleging. What is he alleging? He's giving them the gospel. He's giving them Christ. We could translate, he's alleging that Christ must have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that that Jesus, whom I preach to you, is Messiah. Is Messiah. Christ was to the Jews a stumbling block. He couldn't be the Messiah. The Messiah was going to come, and they were going to deliver us from Rome. And the Messiah was going to set up his kingdom, and we were going to be a free people once again. But what did Christ come to do? Seek and to save that which was lost, right? What did Christ have to do before he came to set up his, his kingdom? He had to come 
And he had to put in place a way for people to be saved from their sin. And so when you look at the Old Testament scriptures, it's hard to see that point in time that far, that far ago, that long ago, uh, the time when Christ would come. And yet it says here that Paul, the third word there, he alleged, or he evidenced, he proved it. How did he prove it to the Jews? He went back to the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, it says that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Who is Christ a descendant of? David. All right? Maybe he went to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and it tells us that the Messiah would be born where? In Bethlehem. Where was Christ born? In Bethlehem. Where was Christ from? Nazareth. So why wasn't he born in Nazareth? Because it was prophesied in the Old Testament he would be born in Bethlehem. See how all that works together? All right? Maybe you went to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 and had him unroll that scroll of Isaiah. And it says that he would be born of a virgin. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2 says that the Messiah would bring Israel a great light. Did not Christ do that in his earthly ministry? Christ said of himself, I'm the light of the world. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy concerning the Messiah. I'd like us to consider then um, the Apostle Paul. You know, when we think of the Apostle Paul, and, and he lists here at the end, we'll go through some, some scriptures about the great multitudes that came to Christ because of the Apostle Paul's ministry, the churches that were started, uh, the gospel that spread to Europe. Um, and so we hit these high points. And again, uh, earlier, when a missionary comes and he speaks to you, he's giving you the high points of their ministry. Uh, if you really want to know what a missionary's like, get one-on-one with him and ask him what was the toughest thing that you suffered during this last term on the field. And how did God meet that need? And how did God deal with that situation? And let them tell you how God worked. To me, that's, that's the, the meat of it. How did God work and how did God provide? How did God um, get the victory in whatever situation, whatever hardship that you found yourself in. Back in Acts chapter 16, so we have to know God's word. That was the key for Paul. He understood the, the word of God. And in fact, when I think of the Apostle Paul with his Damascus experience, three days he sat there blind in a room, pondering. You know, what would you think about for three days after God, you just met with God and were blind? Well, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, so he probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. <laughs> this, the Apostle Paul was uh, somewhat of a genius. He was the one that was trained under Gamaliel. Gamaliel wouldn't take just any old student. So the Apostle Paul understood the Old Testament, but when he realized the Old Testament in light of who God was, who Jesus Christ was as the Messiah, I think he was putting all of those things together in his mind. The scriptures from Psalms, the scriptures from Isaiah, the scriptures from Jeremiah, the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And in his own mind, now that he realizes who Christ is, he's seeing how all those things play out in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he understood the scriptures, or he opened the scriptures to him, it says. Christ did the same thing with the disciples on the way to, uh, on the road to 
um, Emmaus. You'll recall the two disciples are walking along. And up behind them walks a man, right? Chases them down, so to speak. He walks up from behind them. And they're, they're all depressed. And they're saying, I thought Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. Well, he was right up until he was crucified. Now he's buried and he's in the ground, right? And they're, and they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on with this, this Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah, but now is dead in a tomb. And a man walks up behind him. And he opens the scriptures and expounds the scriptures, the Messiah, to them from the Old Testament. It's the same word used there of Christ that is used here of Paul. He goes back to the Old Testament. The Jews are familiar with the Old Testament. And he expounds on those scriptures concerning the Messiah and proves he's laying the evidence before them that Jesus Christ of Nazareth indeed was the Messiah of the Jews. So for three Sabbaths, This is what Paul did. Secondly, we have to know God's will. Knowing God's will. Turn back to Acts chapter 16. I found this quite interesting. We find here at the beginning of uh, Paul's second missionary journey, he's got a little bit of an argument with uh, Barnabas. Barnabas says to Paul, Hey man, it's been a while since we've been on a missions trip. Let's go back and visit all the churches that we established on our first trip. And Paul's like, all right, let's do it. I'm in agreement with that. Let's go. Paul says, this is Matt Cropsey version, by the way. <clears throat> Barnabas says, all right, well, we're going to take John Mark with us again. And Paul says, uh, I don't think so. Right? What was the problem with John Mark? If you go back to Acts chapter 13 and look at verse 13, it says when they got to Perga and Pamphylia, that John Mark departed halfway through. Literally, he deserted them. Literally, he apostized is the, is the root word. He left them. He just turned around and left them. And so Paul and Barnabas had to finish that journey on their own without the help of John Mark. Now Barnabas is saying, let's bring John Mark with us. You know, he's, he's seen the error of his ways. And uh, he'll be good for us. And Paul says, no, I don't think so. Right? We're talking about going back through, through Asia, back up through Turkey. There's lots of mountains. It's, it's a hard trip. There's, there's lots of things against us. He said, I need someone that I know is going to have my back and is going to uphold me. John Mark's not the man. And Barnard says, well, I'm not going if John Mark's not going. And what does Paul do? Well, I'm not going if John Mark's going. So what happened? Barnabas and John Mark go on their journey, and now Paul and Silas... They come together, Silas being up from Jerusalem at Antioch, checking things out there in Antioch. And the church approves Paul and Silas to go on their second missionary journey. So we find right off the bat, just like Miami, things were not going well for Paul, right, from the get-go. But here's the interesting thing. They were for sure that God had called them to the second missionary journey. So let's look at chapter 16 and drop down to verse 6. It says, Now when they had gone throughout Fergie and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after that they were come, to, or come through, really is the translation there, Mysia. They essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. This is an interesting passage. I thought we were supposed to be missionaries, Paul and Silas are saying. Right? They've been launched, they're going, and they're, they're thinking we're headed for Asia. We'll go up through Turkey, head, head east, up, up into Asia. 
But what does it say concerning the Holy Spirit? The end of verse 6, it says the Holy Spirit forbade them to preach the word in Asia. Interesting. Interesting. I thought the, uh, we're debtors to all men and we should preach the gospel to every creature. That's what Mark says. So why is it that the Holy Ghost forbade Paul to preach the word in Asia? So we find that they come up along the way here. They're headed north <clears throat> into Turkey. They were come to Mysia. They essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Literally translated, the Holy Spirit was cutting them off. It's like here's the road into Asia, and Paul and Silas turned to follow that road, and the Holy Spirit cut them off and said, you can't go that way. Okay. But what the Holy Spirit doesn't tell them is which way they're supposed to go. They said, nope, can't go that way. Cuts them off. It's like, okay, well, we'll go this way. So they go that way some more, and they try to head over again in the same direction, and the Holy Spirit cuts them off again. It says, nope, can't go that way. It's interesting. If you, if you look at the maps, I love maps. I like atlases. Um, I'm just strange that way. But if you look at the, the geographical features in Turkey, it's full of mountains, I mean tall mountains, right? Mount Ararats in Turkey. Um, high plateaus, harsh lands. So to travel that on foot or by donkey or horse is a very strenuous thing to do. And so we can see Paul and Silas toiling through the mountain passes, through the peaks, down into the valleys, trying to go this way and then being cut off and have to go back the way they came and try a different route and getting cut off there and trying another route. And so you can imagine then that Paul and Silas are being worn out physically. Think about this. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be leading Paul and Silas in the way that they should go and the message that they should preach. And he's the one that keeps cutting them off. So now think physically and mentally what Paul and Silas are enduring. I thought this was the will of God for us to go out and to preach the gospel. And now the very same Holy Spirit that sent us forth is the one who's cutting us off. And he's not giving them any direction. The will of God right now for Paul and Silas is unknown. Can I put it to you that way? Throughout life, we're looking for the will of God. We're looking, what should I do next? How should I approach this? How should I do that? And we're looking to God for guidance. We're looking for his will in the matter. And it brings me a little bit of joy and a little bit of satisfaction to know that the Apostle Paul had problems knowing God's will for his life. We're talking about the greatest apostle to the Gentiles that there was. Maybe all the apostles that there was. He was up there. And yet he had problems figuring out where God wanted him to be and what he should be doing. I mean, if the Apostle Paul can't figure it out, how can I figure it out? Right? If you keep reading in that same passage, then it says in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night once he gets to Troas. A vision in verse 9 appears to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia. We just sang about that in one of our hymns that we sang this morning, second verse. The Macedonian call. It says that he saw a man from Macedonia saying what? 
Come over into Macedonia and help us. Where's Macedonia? It's kind of like Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh that way. Where did Jonah go? That way, as far as he could. He said, I want a ticket from the place that's furthest away from Nineveh. I'll take one of those. Right? Here, the Apostle Paul is intent on carrying out God's will for his life. He's, in car- he's intent about carrying out the gospel and preaching the gospel that he's supposed to be carrying with him. But he is on his own going the wrong direction, so to speak. He thinks, right? I don't know if you've ever been in a place like this in your own life. You're trying this, you're trying that. It seems God's not here. It seems that God's not there. You're exhausting yourself. You're praying. You're doing everything that you think is right. And yet you hear nothing from God. And a lot of times we're like, well, I'm just going to give up. Right? I'm going to give up. So when Paul and Silas get to Troas, they're basically, you know what, Lord, you know, we give up. We've tried this way, we've been cut off over there. We've went that way, we've been cut off over there. Now we're in here some forsaken sea city of Troas, and we don't know what to do. So what do they do? God gives them a vision. Wait on God. He'll show you what you need. It's interesting. Who wrote the book of Acts? One certain physician named Luke. Luke. And if you noticed in the text, in chapter 16, let me try and find it in this Bible. Believe it or not, I came to a missions conference and I forgot my Bible. (laughs) And I'm trying to work out of this thing Phil gave me. I'm suffering. I know my Bible. I don't know where anything is in this Bible. All right. Chapter 16. Um... This, this Bible, it has multiple words that could be translated different ways. So it's quite confusing for me, but that's okay. If you notice through the chapter, it says they. Take verse, verse 6, for instance. It says, now when they had gone throughout Phrygia in the region of Galatia. So Luke, at this point, is not with Paul and Silas. Right? So where does Luke get picked up? Verse 8 says, They, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. So a vision appeared to Paul. So I'm going to take a gander at verse 10. 9. 10, if I can find it. Read 10. I can't find it. Aha! We! So where did Paul, where did Paul pick up Luke. Troas, right? Did, did Luke end up caring for the Apostle Paul throughout the rest of his ministry? Yes. Yes, he was there for Paul when Paul needed him most. When his body was broken and beaten and abused, who was there to care for him? He had his own private physician. It was Dr. Luke who was there for him. Right? So, in all of this wandering around, seemingly from Paul's perspective, what was God doing to Paul? He was shepherding him, or corralling him is the term, to Troas so that he could meet Luke 
and Luke and, and Paul would hit it off, and then Luke would be a constant companion of the Apostle Paul and care for the Apostle Paul's needs. You don't pick that up just by reading through it unless you pay attention. But it, it goes from they to we. So now leaving Troas, we have Paul, Silas, and Luke together. And then, by the way, they picked up Timothy uh, and Lystra earlier on. Okay, So the four of them are now having some direction. So they, God tells them, gives them a vision, you need to come to Europe, not to Asia. Leave Asia alone. Asia's not ready for you yet. Asia's not ready for the gospel, or I have it prepared for someone else to come to Asia. You go to Europe. So that's the way the Apostle Paul takes his people. He takes them over to Asia. So know God's word, knowing God's will. Thirdly, we're going to know Christ's suffering. You're like, whoa, where did you come up with that? Knowing Christ's suffering. What did Christ tell us? He says, the world hated me for no reason. The world hated me for no reason. Why did the Jews hate Christ? No reason. They did. <laughs> they just did. Right? And Christ says, if you're going to be my disciple and the world hates me, what are they going to do to you? They're going to hate you too. Why? What does a Christian mean? Little Christ. Christ-like. You're a little Christ running around in this world. I'm a little Christ running around in this world. And if the world hated the first Christ, don't you think they're going to hate someone that's trying to imitate him? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, not only do they hate you, Satan hates you as well. And he's going to do everything he can to destroy you or to discourage you or to throw you down and get you out of the fight. This is what Satan's trying to do. And he'll use whatever means he can to accomplish that. Did the Apostle Paul know that he was going to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ? I found this interesting as well. Back in Acts chapter 9, in verse 15, Luke tells us, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, and he's speaking to Ananias here, For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Look at verse 16. In chapter 9, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew before he started his ministry that it was going to be a ministry of suffering. He was going to pay by way of his body in carrying out his commission to reach the Gentiles for the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, to me, it's one thing to figure, okay, you know, I might get yelled at, I might have a stone thrown at me here and there, I might get uh, thrown in prison possibly, but to know that you're going to be shipwrecked, to know that you're going to suffer uh, persecution by way of uh, rods to your back three different times, being stoned many different times, even unto death, and to still go and give them the gospel. How do, how do you do that? How do you do that? He had a different view of his place in life. He was there to serve the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what. No matter what. And how many times do we, well, I have a cold. I can't make it to church tonight. Oh, you know, 
uh, my wife had a shoe that rubbed a blister on the back of her heel, so she probably should have stayed home today, right? Because, oh, my foot, it's lame. <laughs> and we, we find excuses not to serve God. And here, Paul, he's inviting it, almost. He's like, praise God, he counts me worthy to suffer for him. We don't have that attitude. We don't have that outlook. Let's look at some of the ways Paul suffered. <clears throat> I have to find where I'm at in my notes. That's why I don't like notes. Verse, skip down to verse 20. I would read the whole chapter, but we don't have time. In fact, it's already, it's already lunchtime, so we'll wrap this up. How long, how long do you preach, Bill? Around 2.30. 2.30? He shuts the lights off when he leaves afterwards. All right. Go down to verse 20. Um, let me give you some, some uh, context here. We find Paul and Silas, uh, Timothy and Luke, have made their way to Philippi. It says in the scriptures that this was the chief city of Macedonia. Really, it's the first city that they've come to after leaving port on their trip there. And so God brings them to Philippi. We find then at Philippi that he goes down to the riverside to pray and to preach Christ to the people who are gathered there, which tells us that Philippi was exceedingly evil because there was no synagogue in Philippi. There were fewer than ten Jews in Philippi where they would have a synagogue. Um, and we find here <clears throat> in him going and preaching the gospel to the river in verse 16. We'll pick it up. It came to pass as he went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. So what does Paul run into? We find this, this girl, and what did she do? It says in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, and she cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. Sounds like a pretty good message. Sounds like a pretty good marketing scheme. We got this lady following us around, proclaiming who we are. That'll help get people in. But what does it say after she's done this for three days? What did Paul do? She was possessed of a demon, right? I would find it odd that Satan would send one of his demons to possess a girl, to follow the Apostle Paul around and proclaim to the people who he was and what he was doing. You find this a little odd, right? The Jews, the Pharisees really, accused Christ of being in league with Beelzebub. And what was Christ's answer? We're opposites, man. Satan's over here, I'm over here. We, 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 our goals are two separate things. Satan's all for himself. He's all for destroying man. I'm here to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm here on a mission from God the Father. Totally two separate things. So how can I be partaker with Beelzebub? It doesn't even make any sense, right? So how is this working for Paul? It says here in 18, she did this for many days, but Paul being grieved, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and he came out the same hour or that very instant. He came out. 
The literal translation is, he exited her. The evil spirit exited the girl. And it's funny, Luke's using a play on words here in, in, in verse 19. And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was exited, same word, the spirit was gone, their lucrative business went out the window with it. What was this girl doing to make money? I hate clocks. Here we have, we're in Philippi. Philippi, there was a temple to Apollos, one of the Greek gods there. And if you go and you do your Greek mythology research, you'll find that Zeus, the father of Apollos, was married, had a a wife, but he also had an affair with, with someone else. And this lady was carrying Apollos and his sister Artemis. She was pregnant. And so Zeus's wife found out about it. And, and she made a deal with Python, this dragon snake creature, to chase after his mistress so that she would have to run and never stop. And therefore, she would never be able to give birth to Apollos and to Artemis. Makes perfect sense to me. It's all Greek, right? So, obviously he didn't chase her hard enough because Apollos was born and Artemis was born. And according to Greek mythology, Apollos grows up and even at the age of four, he's mighty in strength and accomplishments. And he learns about this whole scenario um, about his mother cursing his birth mother. And so he decides he's going to go take on Python. So he goes to the temple of Python. And there's a cave. And Python has an oracle. He's considered a god of prophecy. And he, in some stories, he kills Python. And in other stories, he subdues Python. And now Python becomes uh, a symbol. And Apollo inherits the gift of prophecies. And Python and Python's oracles are the people who speak the prophecies of Python. So you're saying, what does this have to do with this, right? I know, it's complicated. <clears throat> this girl says here was, was met, was, or Paul was met, with a woman who is possessed with a spirit of divination. And that word divination there could be translated python. So she was a servant, a slave, to the temple of Apollo in Philippi, possibly one of the oracles, as far as the people were concerned, one of the oracles of python. And so we have here... Paul preaching the gospel, and this oracle of a Greek god is testifying as to who he was and what they were doing. So does God and and the Greek gods have anything in common? No, right? So whether Paul is grieved at the fact that she's coming behind him and prophesying, or whether the fact Paul's grieved because the girl's been possessed by this demon and has no will of her own, it's hard to say, but at any rate, He's saying this, this woman needs set free. So what does he do? He condemns the demon in her, and she comes out. It says that very hour, that very, that very minute, 
And so how is it that then that her masters lost their income? More than likely, they were priests in the temple of Apollo, and they were using her to give the future and all this stuff that goes on with that. Um, and so they were making money hand over fist by virtue of the fact that she was an oracle of Python. All right? What happens after that? In verse 20, it says that, that they were caught in verse 19. They caught Paul and Silas by their clothes and they dragged them off to the marketplace to be tried for their crimes. Right? Let me ask you this. Did, did the people of Philippi, did the magistrates, did these people from the temple, did they care before? It says that he's doing this many days. Paul's been there and he's been preaching the gospel and he's been giving them the truth. And there's no, no problems. But as soon as Paul's preaching affects their pocketbooks and their livelihood, now there's an issue. Right? Now there's an issue. And so they drag him down there, and to make a long story short, they are tried, convicted, and sentenced. All right now. They were stripped of their clothes, and it says here in this passage that they were beaten with rods, with sticks by the lictors, the policemen, the guys that carried out the judgment of the magistrates. Then they were brought to the jailhouse, which is probably adjacent to the marketplace, and it says that they were thrown into the inner cell. Great. That's a good place to be, right? The inner cell. It's real safe down there. <laughs> no. This was the place for uh, hardened criminals, the place for um, a murderer or someone of a heinous crime would be thrown, right? And so they, the jailer is, is throwing them down in there. Their backs are bleeding. They're, they're hurting. And then let's see Paul and Silas experience Christ's joy. What happens? If it was me, I would be murmuring and groaning and complaining, my back hurts, and I've lost half my blood? And what in the world did we come to Philippi for? This is God's will for me? I don't think so, right? I'm headed home, guys, as soon as I break out of this place. I'm out of here. But what do we find in verse 25? It says, At midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises with God, and the prisoners heard them. And if you want to cross-reference this to Psalm 113 through 118, that is the Hillel Psalms that were sung during Passover. Those are probably the Psalms that Paul and Silas were praising God with while they were in prison, in the middle of the night. And as soon as they finished praising God, an earthquake comes and it sets them free. Right? If you recall, the Philippian jailer was going to end his own life because that would have been his punishment for letting the prisoners go. The prisoners stayed. Um, <clears throat> but here we have Paul and Silas praising God in the midst of their suffering. And can I say, that's what we need to do. Man, we get down on life, ho-hum, pity-party me, this, that, and the other. And, you know, again... Paul realized that God is sovereign. 
that God had a plan for his life, that God had a plan for Philippi, God had a plan to get his gospel to Europe, and he was going to use Paul and Silas to do it. And so for Paul and Silas to be in prison, it means they were being effective in their proclamation of the gospel. They hated me, they're going to hate you. So if you're not being persecuted for your beliefs, you're not living properly. Can I put it that way? And so Paul and Silas were fine being there. This is all part of God's plan. His plan for us, his plan for reaching Philippi with the gospel. And as soon as they finish praising God, they're set free. God releases them from prison. So what else was so joyful about this? That doesn't seem like much. But in verse 5, it says, As up to their ministry, the churches were established in the faith and increased in number daily. Hey, they were a part of that. God used them to make that happen. In verse 15, it says that when Lydia was baptized in her household, he won a whole household to the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippi. And in fact, Lydia was a very wealthy woman, and she made her home the headquarters and the resource to spread the gospel from there. So that happened. Verse 32, we find that the jailer and his whole family, it says, They spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, in verse 34, and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. If you fast forward into the life of the Apostle Paul, he's in prison in Rome. Who was it that sent help to the Apostle Paul? It was the church at Philippi. In the next chapter, you find Paul in Thessalonica tent-making because he doesn't have any way to support himself other than that. And we find that the church at Philippi on two separate occasions sends support to the Apostle Paul to help him in his ministry. None of that would have happened had he not set sail for Philippi out of Troas. So in closing, I'll go, I'm going to end this here. I'd hate for the chicken to get cold feet. <laughs> Sorry, it's a sick sense of humor. <laughs> when, I, when I'm reviewing this and I'm looking at my own life and I'm thinking, how do I, how do I apply this to my life? How do I, um, what needs to change in my life to make me more like the Apostle Paul. Paul says to follow after me the same way that I followed after the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm an example in that area, so follow after me the way that I followed after the Lord Jesus So how do I follow after Christ the way that Paul did? Well, I got, I've got to know his word. I've got to know his word. I got, I've got to know that God is sovereign and has a plan for everything that happens, whether it's good or not. He's working his will through it. When do you grow the most as a Christian? When everything's hunky-dory? Or when you're struggling through sometimes and you're on your knees before God and you're praying and you watch Him meet your need? That's when you grow. That's when your faith expands. That's when you're exercised, right? When do muscles grow? Mine never did, but they're supposed to. (laughs) When you exercise them, right? So exercise our faith. Um... Knowing God's will. Paul tells us elsewhere that it's God's will for all men to repent. He commands every man everywhere 
to repent. Well, how can they repent if they've never heard? Right? Paul tells us that in Romans. How, how can they, except someone goes, except someone preaches, they won't know. That's our job. Right? And are we willing to say, I'm going to do this at whatever the cost? If it costs me my house, if it costs me my car, if it costs me my job, if it costs me whatever, this is the will of God. And I'll tell you, God will lead you in those things, and it will be plain for you. I believe that God was leading Paul and Silas, even when they didn't realize it, when they didn't think they were being led, when they thought they were wandering. God was leading them to Troas for the purpose of giving Paul Luke. And you can say, man, I wandered back there for, for months when I tried to make that trek across the mountains to get to where I thought I was supposed to go, and it never just did work out, right? I thought I was going back to Africa as a missionary. Uh, I've been planning this my whole life. I'm still here. <laughs> still here. Still trying to get back there. Um, God works, and he'll put you where he wants you to be. I think when I'm in Africa, man, I had, I had a huge group of guys, 20, 30 guys. That we, would, we would work together every day. We would do Bible studies together every day. They were hungry for the word of God. Uh, they just ate it up. And we would sing together in the hangar down there at the airstrip, and it would echo out of there, and everyone would say, man, it sounds like angels in the morning singing down there, not because of me, because of them. Um, and then you come back here, and people are like, yeah, yeah, take it or leave it. doesn't matter. You know, I'm, I'm going to live my life how I'm going to live it. Say whatever you're going to say. I just come to church because we've always come to church. Right? We have to quit living that way. Right? We have to make a difference. We have to turn the world upside down. There's work to be done. There's things to do, people to meet, things to say. The Holy Spirit will work. And he'll lead you in a plain path to do it. Well, let's pray. Let's close there. We could keep going. Who's interested in keep going here? A couple. Okay. I'll meet with you later. <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful for the Holy Spirit of God who um, leads us, Lord, in a plain path. We're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ who goes before us. Lord, we're thankful that we don't have to step out into a world of unknown, but you, you walk before us and prepare the way. Lord, I thank you for Emmanuel Baptist Church this morning, for the ministry that they have in their community, Lord, in their faithfulness and uh, giving the word of God to the lost, spreading the, the good news, the gospel, uh, to a dark and a dying world. Lord, I pray today that you would work in each of our hearts, Lord, work in my heart to experience um, a sense of a, a greater need to work harder, to study the Word of God harder, to know it better, to be better qualified to give an answer, Lord, to know your will. Uh, maybe be faithful in, in carrying it out, Lord. We, we can expect suffering, but we can also expect uh, the peace of God and the joy of God that passes all understanding. Lord, I pray today that you would just bless the fellowship and the food to come. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.